Hello, my name is Jonathan Weiner, and welcome to this edition of Headroom. Blockchain is probably best known for and most associated with the idea of cryptocurrency, such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. And it certainly has applications in things like supply chain and industry in various ways, shapes and forms. And it's also something that's showing up in the context of the creative and the life of the musician. Today, I'm going to be joined by Nicole Davis and George Howard, who both work with, for, are involved with OMI, the Open Music Initiative, to talk to us a little bit about how blockchain is showing up in the life of the creative musician and the creative artist, and uh, give us a little bit of insight into um, the applications of it, and also maybe think a little bit about what might be coming next. So, Nicole and George, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, thanks. for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Of course. It's my pleasure. Um, you and I first came to know each other through an association with a company called Rykodisc. And, and Rykodisc, for those uh, listeners that are not familiar with it, was a record label that was an early adopter of a new method of distributing music um, that I think gave certain advantages, or at least proposed advantages, uh, to listeners and to artists. Um, I'm, I'm just curious if you have any um, thoughts about looking back at Rykodisc and that kind of innovation and what that represented then and maybe how that might sort of bring us to the current day. Yeah, so thanks for that opportunity and background. Yeah, um, so Rykodisc was the, the first um, CD-only label back in the uh, mid to late 80s. Um, I became president of the label in the uh, mid to late 90s and then it was sold to Warner. Um, so I take no credit for the, the, the innovation of the idea, but in, in hindsight, you can see pretty clearly that, that it, it is a good case study. Ryko was a good case study. It just kind of w what I always refer to as innovators dilemma thinking, which is the, the big incumbents um, are very, tend, in any industry, but certainly in the music industry, tend to be late to adopt new technologies. And, and historically, that's been the case. In the case of, of Ryko, the innovation that you're talking about in terms of a new distribution model was the CD, which at, at the time that Ryko adopted it or, or, or sort of embraced it, um, the major labels, and I, and I have on record Mo Austin, from, who was the chairperson of Warner at the time, saying that he would go to his grave before Warner ever put out an album on CD. <laughs> And it makes sense, because if you think about the, the, the technology, first off, I mean, the major labels were, were fat and happy in, in, you know, to a certain degree in the 70s and um, in the 80s on and vinyl and cassette, which they also, by the way, resisted like crazy. Uh, the major labels tried to sue cassette manufacturers out of business. Um, and, and if you think about the technical challenges at the time, and you would know better than I, but... Okay, so we have all this analog tape and, and everything else, and, and you now are asking us to digitize that, which is what's required for CD. And you're talking kind of late 80s computational power. So the cost yeah, of, exactly of zero. taking... <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, it wasn't zero, but it wasn't a lot, right? I mean, so the cost of taking a, a analog tape and then digitizing that for CD was, was non-trivial. It was expensive. And, and at first... The, the labels didn't see the value proposition. Like, why would we spend the money to do that? It's too expensive. And we don't think customers want it. 
And and it goes to the kind of age old axiom of, you know, if you wait for your customers to, to tell you what they want, they'll just keep telling you the same thing. Henry Ford said, you know, if he asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said a, a faster horse and buggy. But the founders of Ryko were, Don Rose was owned a record store and he was importing CDs from Japan. And, and so he saw that there was a demand and unlike the, unlike the, um, the big incumbents, he didn't have the risk mm-hmm. that the others did. He said, well, we'll try it. And it turned out that there, there actually was, was demand. And then again, as you know, better than, than most, the price of technology comes down over time. So what originally cost literally thousands of dollars to digitize analog, um, inputs came down fast. And, and you combine that with the, the customer demand, and then the calculus became very easy, right? The calculus, whereas before was, well, we're not going to spend $1,000 to digitize something that we sell for $500. That doesn't make any sense. We will spend $500 to digitize something that we can sell for $1,000, right? And so that got the flywheel going. But it, it, it it's a good metaphor because it, it relates really well, I think, with the trajectory of, of innovation in music and technology generally. It was, I, I've seen various modes of kind of um, disintermediation in the music industry beginning originally with Pro Tools, right? Where it was like, that was the first moment where the artist could kind of go, yeah, I don't, I don't really need to trade my, my ownership and my sound recording for, in perpetuity for your money or access to your studio. I'll just do it myself. And that, that changed things drastically. Um, the second disintermediating moment was a byproduct, really, of of Ryko and, and, and digitization, which was um, iTunes and then companies like TuneCore. Which, because even once Pro Tools came along, artists said, "Well, yeah, we can make our own records using Pro Tools, but we still need you to distribute them." iTunes and the digitization and uh, and putting music up on online, and then companies like TuneCore which I had a hand in as well, disintermediated the, the supply chain in terms of distribution so that artists now had to go, well, wait, I, I don't need you label to distribute or to fund my recording. And then the labels would say, yeah, but we still need, you still need us for promotion. And then arguably things like social media and platforms, whether it's Patreon or Bandcamp or whatever, disintermediated that kind of promotional element where it's like, no, you can, can now, you don't need a label to be your PR person or your radio person. And, and that's arguable, but you know, it's certainly disintermediated to a degree. And the last stage of disintermediation, to my mind, revolves around fractional tracking mm-hmm. and rights ownership. Mm-hmm. And that's where blockchain comes in, where you, know, you still currently, if you want to get paid in any type of accurate way or at all, you still have these intermediaries, whether it's the the Harry Foxes of the world or the MLCs or the PROs. And that's really just as archaic of a, of a kind of mindset and thinking as, as a label saying, well, you still need us to make a record, to distribute a record, to promote a record. Can you benefit from that? Sure. Do you need it? No, right? And blockchain to me is the answer for that last mile disintermediation of, okay, I can make my own music, I can distribute my music, I can promote it, and now I can measure track and collect it without an intermediary. The takeaway, the main thread, if you will, that that I'm hearing through the entire narrative that you painted so beautifully there is, um, or the evolution, 
The technological innovation has given tools to the artist to reinvent the relationship with the audience, hopefully to attempt to do that. Yeah, and every time, and, and the innovation never comes from within the industry, right? It always comes from outsiders. So your example, Rikerdisc was an outsider, uh, an innovator. The incumbents didn't want a CD. The only person that paid attention to the decentralized um, fractionalization of data um, that was happening with Napster was, was Daniel from Spotify, right? Like he realized that what Napster was, was a peer-to-peer -peer decentralized social network that's using in blockchain terminology as sharding. But if you're familiar with, with torrenting files, it's the same thing. He saw that and, and it was a trail. And, and he said, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of centralize and legalize this, right? So every time there's an innovative moment, it's never within the industry. And that's why on this, this windmill that I've been tilting towards with blockchain, I could give two fucks if the music industry thinks that it's the right thing or the wrong thing, because they never do. That innovation's never gonna come. It's not gonna come from some major label going, oh, we gotta do blockchain. So yeah, it's part of the typical trajectory. Nicole, I'd like to invite you into this. Introduce yourself with your job title or with the description of your role uh, in OMI, if you would. Sure. So um, I'm managing director of Berkeley's Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship, um, from which Open Music, in partnership with MIT, uh, was sort of birthed. And um, I currently sort of run Open Music, whatever that means, um, sort of the circus <laughs> leader. So yeah, I, I work on the convening and keeping the projects going and, you know, being in touch with members and, you know, sort of looking at what the next steps are and what open music's role is in the industry as it sort of continues to evolve. I, I have to ask you, you use the word circus. Is, is the reason you describe this as a circus because there's so many constituents that it feels like you're never sure which portion of the big top to look at? Or is it, uh, is there something else about the, the does it relate to the, the, the nature of the project? Or is there something else that I'm missing? I, I mean, it might be a multifaceted metaphor. But, um, <laughs> you know, one, I mean, I, I didn't come from sort of this world. And so when I stepped in, there's people that George had been in rooms with for probably decades, I'm guessing, having really similar conversations. And um, one of the things that I've both come to love, but also sort of observed and seen as a, a challenge to sort of be addressed is that, you know, all of these people are sort of accustomed to showing up in the room and having similar roles and sort of vibes and interacting in a really specific way. And um, there's part of the predictability that I love. And then the other part is, you know, I, I what I like to think is that open music in some ways allowed people to show up in those spaces differently or to flip the conversations. Um, and quite frankly, I think that the existence of blockchain, whether or not um, open music solutions ended up using them also allowed those conversations to change. I think that just the existence of these new ways of sharing data allowed people to sort of just think in a new way about um, proprietary information and the ability to have both public and private data that could be shared um, differently. So let's take people up a level. For those who have never heard the acronym OMI or, or the, uh, the name Open Media, Open Music Initiative, I'm sorry. Can you give a, a definition to what OMI is? 
Uh, sure. Yeah. So we are a nonprofit initiative, a collective. We have over 300 members across the music value chain from point of creation to consumption and then, um, you know, all of the reporting and, and payment services as well as sort of adjacent industries, health and cinema, etc. This collective aims to do primarily three things. One is to work on um, interoperability and open protocols for the accurate and efficient transfer of rights holder information and payments for um, you know more accurate payments and attribution for creative rights holders. Uh, the second is around education on intellectual property. And this is certainly for artists. It's obviously incredibly important. It's something that I think George has devoted most of his life to. Um, but at the same time, I think it's opened up a feedback loop for people to be in the room that aren't necessarily always um, hearing from each other on not only how do artists understand intellectual property, but also how do artists create um, and how does that inform how you actually uh, make these standards and protocols. And then the last piece is really important, which is innovation on emer uh, emerging technologies. So how can the industry work on future proofing and um, ideally avoid some of these patterns that George was just describing as far as, you know, whenever the next technology comes along. Uh -huh. And so uh, an example of a few of the partners uh, um, that are involved with OMI. Yeah, sure. The, the major labels, um, Spotify, there's been some interesting, so uh, Media Chain, um, which was acquired by Spotify, was a member early on, Blockcore, um, which is a, a smaller startup, Netflix, YouTube, yeah, Netflix, Facebook, YouTube, yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of everybody in between. There's a ton of startups, there's artists, there's management companies. Um, and yeah, we've had all sorts of people um, from Desmond Childs and Hank Shockley and, and others joining our events and um, speaking about the the work that we do. And, and again, like the way that they create, the way that music is created, the way that producers and engineers and instrumentalists Steve Vai, you know, all of these, all of these people talking about, you know, how they imagine their career the way that they want it to be. And the challenges that even, if, you know, artists as successful as those that I named, um, the challenges that they've confronted. Yeah. And Imogen Heap's been a, a material yeah. contributor as well. And I, I should just say that, um, you know, uh, Nicole and then Panos Panay are genius at just bringing people together in the same room who otherwise just wouldn't. I mean, you know, Jonathan, from being in the industry, it's hard enough to get these people to, to go to lunch. And <laughs> Nicole and Panos have managed to make this a real convening space where people can share ideas. And I think that's a big part of the value prop, that if you are one of these incumbents, you do want to have exposure to a broad kind of swath. And that's sometimes hard to do, right? Um, either psychologically or just pragmatically. So it's because it's a, a, a joint effort between Berkeley and MIT it's non-threatening. We're not, we don't, we're not trying to make money off of these people. Right. So it's, it, it allows for people, it's kind of a Chatham house rules type thing, like where people can talk and they can express ideas without feeling like they have to necessarily I don't know, be held, be held to some sort of standard that would keep them from expressing ideas. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think that we, you know, I mean, thank you, George. And I think that there's also something to be said about being under the cover of Berkeley. I mean, we have no horse in the race other than art and artists and, you know, those things, like when you hold them central, nobody's going to, you know, no one in that room is going to sort of publicly be like, well, I don't 
care about art or I don't care about artists. And so if you're holding that center, um, you know, then it, it becomes a very different conversation. And then it allows you to just reframe like, okay, well, then is this, you know, way of doing things really that important? Or how can we make it better for, for art and artists? Well, so if I can call that out, because I think you raise a very interesting sort of dichotomy. Um, on one hand, no one could argue with the assertion, I think, that at the center of music is the musician, is the creative, is the creative impetus. Uh, at the center of the music economy, well, you know, there are some people, maybe cynically or otherwise, who might say, actually, it's the distributor, it's the, the marketer, it's the people who create the opportunity, and then, you know, we'll just take whatever creative impetus exists. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, you get these incumbents, George, as you um, as you put it in the room, uh, who are looking at something that has the potential to either be disruptive to, to the sort of traditional model about who's creating value and where, where the monetization happens, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, possibly trying to sort of co-opt opportunities that might exist with new technology. And I'm just wondering, you know, is there a way in which you steer people more towards the you know, seeing the opportunity around the democratization, the access that's given by a technology such as blockchain, or are you sort of constantly having to sort of uh, negotiate, navigate the varied interests, the interests that seem a little bit at odds with each other? Well, I mean, I, I think institutions can be unethical or, or misguided even when the individuals who work for those institutions are deeply ethical and guided in the right manner. Huh. So, and, and Nicole introduced me to somebody who I now quote all the time, the institution doesn't love you back, right? And so, um, I, I don't know. And, and to a certain degree, I don't really care. I can't force anyone to be innovative or ethical or anything else, right? I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an academic. Um, I can, you know, in an economic sense of the word, nudge people through through kind of incentives, but you know, you also have to you also have to um, look at the realities. Um, I mean, economists are fond of saying, you know, well, ceteris paribus, all things being equal, but things are never equal, right? And and that that's why economists are so frequently wrong. So it's one thing to say this would be good for your artist to some incumbent. But if that person who is running that incumbent is a 60-year-old white male who has got kids in college or whatever and a you know, $2 million mortgage, he's not going to take risks that go against his own interests unless he sees. So you have to show the upside. So that's where things like analogies and heuristics really help. So about, I don't know, two, three years ago now, I, I came up with this analogy that blockchain is to the music industry as Saber could be uh, Saber is to to the travel industry. And if you don't know, Saber is is a database that all of the all of the airlines, all the rental cars, all of the hotels populate with their prices. And then companies originally this happened in the 1950s, but it's grown into so now companies like Kayak and Hipmunk and Travelocity and Expedia and dozens of others draw from that same database um, and, and they, they all get the same prices. So a Travelocity and a Kayak and a Hipmunk aren't competing to give those searching for travel better prices because they can't. They're competing to give them a better user experience and to find the route, the, the best possible route for them. 
And by doing that, it didn't kill the incumbents, the U.S. heirs of the world, the whatevers. They didn't go away. In fact, they got smarter because of it. It did open up a space for innovators, whether it was Southwest or JetBlue or whatever, because they saw gaps in the market that they could fill. But in all cases, it became a learning type of environment. And so my thesis to the incumbents is blockchain shouldn't be seen as an existential threat to you. It should be seen as an opportunity because it will it will expose new ways to, to do business. It will expose what your customers really want, and then you can service them better. And because you're incumbents, you have all the good stuff. You've accumulated it forever. You know, you have all the stuff. You're just not making it efficient for people to get at it. So, but they're not, they're, they never learn. I mean, like they don't, <laughs> they'll only learn once, in, once an innovator uh, startup does it and gets just like Rekodisk. Like it'll be some innovative startup that does it. And then they go, hmm, because they're doing the same calculus, right? Like when I talked about how um, the cost of digitizing an analog thing was X and they right now everyone's going, but blockchains are expensive. It's really expensive to run a node on a blockchain and all this. And, and you want us to shift our because they can't do the calculus that because of Moore's law, the price is going to come down. It already is. And that because things go from fragile to anti-fragile and get stronger and, and we learn from them. They, they can't see around the corner enough to realize that if they would adopt it faster, they could they could get disproportionate benefit from it. But I am I'm, I'm done trying to convince. I don't care. But <laughs> I, I mean, I will say just and I'll shut up in a second is, um, you know, we saw yesterday the, the Twitter hack. Right. And it was OK. I'm, I'm Steve Jobs or Steve Jobs. I'm Elon Musk and I'm going to give me send money to my Bitcoin wallet and I'll double it. Right. And, and people did. And, and what's what's coming out right now is like at first the knee jerk was, oh, see, Bitcoin and, and blockchain or whatever. It's just it's just for criminals. Well, you know what they can do now? They can trace back that they've got complete line of sight on the records of the transfers of those assets. If this was done with cash or something, you can't. And it's the same analogy with music. It's like this all this does is provide more line of sight and transparency for transfer of rights. But you know who doesn't want more of line of sight and transparency around transfer of rights? The incumbents, because they benefit from the opacity of it. So so let's then move over to talking about the artists, because um, you talk about innovators and the people who may be demonstrating the logic uh, of what you're saying to, to the incumbents, to the people who are sort of um, have a, an embedded model. Are there examples, you mentioned Imogen Heap, examples of artists that you're aware of who are leveraging blockchain, leveraging ways of either developing audiences or getting paid, you know, leveraging this technology to their advantage that are showing what can be done, how it can be used? Who are the innovators here? We are. And I'd much rather, I mean, I think Imogen's fantastic. I talk about her forever. And she was an early adopter and, and her imprimatur around this really gave a lot of heft to it. But I think Nicole and I at a certain point realized that you can wait a long time for markets to mature or you can roll up your sleeves and kind of help them along. So I'd much rather talk about kind of the work that we're doing with Radar and as it uses bl blockchain. Sure. I mean, if you want external examples, I would point most recently to to Revelator, 
a company in Israel that worked with Tioso, um, the, the Finnish PRO, to track and pay PRO royalties to their writers in a matter of hours rather than the normal two years. So yes, there are actual examples of, of this technology, but, but what Nicole and I are, are most you know, focused on right now is using this technology to, to the benefit of, of Berkeley students. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? So we, I guess about a year and a half ago, uh, George and some of our friends at MIT, Thomas Rogiorno specifically, um, whiteboarded out this concept of a couple different pieces. You know, one is how to deal with metadata in a specific way that, you know, uses blockchain, respects this boundary between public and private, and takes a lot of those intermediaries out of play because you're able to go direct, you know, creator to consumer or business to business. Um, and with that, we started looking at, okay, well, if we're going creator to consumer, if we're going sort of directly, who are two entities that we could connect? And we knew that we had, um, as you know as well, Jonathan, a, a vast library, sort of evergreen, ever replenishing of amazing music at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, most of that music is um, not monetized, um, at the time. And, you know, there's been a lot of attempts certainly to figure out ways to commercialize the music. Um, but it hasn't, you know, really been successful. And so that was, you know, the one end. And then I think it was actually Pano's, we were at this like brainstorming session and he had the idea of film students mm -hmm. and, you know, that was sort of that like light bulb moment of like, okay, now we've got something. We knew what the architecture looked like thanks to George and thanks to a ton of work by Thomas and others at MIT. Um, and now we knew what we were going to apply it to. And so that sort of is where radar started to take shape. And so now um, we're very close to launching this first version where Berkeley students are able to upload their music. They enter the metadata. It's... Um, worth mentioning that it's compliant with um, DDEX file standards and they put all of the information about their songs on top of that, you know, in talking to the film students. So uh, through one of our students, we have an amazing sort of self-organizing grassroots team of Berkeley students that, I don't know, the anarchist in me loves how they organize and just sort of like teach each other and bring each other in um, and get work done. And um, one of the students wandered over to Leslie University probably about a year ago and just happened to run into um, Matthew, the chair of the um, film department at Leslie. And he was, he's experimental, like maker and doer. He's been awesome. And so, you know, all of a sudden we had Berkeley students, we had Leslie students, we had a real actual market and connection. And so since then we've been building this where, um, you know, Leslie students gave us really important feedback. So for example, the desire to be able to quickly filter for vocal or non-vocal, um, the ability to tag and think about music. Feudal Japan was like a really popular tag that obviously I never would have been like, yeah, that's definitely how I should be tagging <laughs> my music. And so um, these concepts of like things that there was no way that we could know about how filmmakers look for music was truly important. And so as we've built this now, the the Berkeley students can put in information about their song, they upload it. Um, you know, it's obviously a high quality file, they downsample it. So uh, another learn was that Leslie students wanted to be able to 
listen to the entire thing. They didn't just want a 30 second clip because if they're putting it into their film, they need to be able to make sure the entire thing matches. Um, and then lastly, students can search for the music. Importantly, that metadata and rights holder information is hashed to a blockchain and that's where the information is immutably recorded. And then on top of that, um, once the license is set and the Leslie students purchase uh, the license for that music, then the payment or the, the transaction will also be hashed to a blockchain. And so we're taking these open music principles, these things that we've been talking about for a long time within the open music membership, and we started little by little building them. And, you know, I think that, in my opinion, there's a lot of filters that you can look at radar through. I think that there's the open music filter and that we're putting into practice these different things that we've been talking about for years. I think there's the blockchain filter where you see music licensing happening on a blockchain. George is really good at keeping us focused on um, sort of what works currently for the um, if this, then that smart contract functionality and making sure that the, the rights holdership wasn't too complicated and there wasn't a ton of samples, you know, making sure that we knew who the rights holders were and that they were, you know, one person at this point. Um, and then I think that the other piece that I find probably the most interesting, again, because of my sort of anarchist <laughs> roots, are, is just around like the control and power and sovereignty that it gives to Berkeley students. I mean, I think when you look at journalists increasingly like losing their their bylines and like proof of their work because media companies get shuttered and everything's digital, when you see the same thing happened, obviously, with MySpace, like increasingly like, you know, if Instagram were to... God forbid, go away. Um, <laughs> all of these followerships. I mean, that's what people's like literal life, you know, livelihoods are built on is how many followers do you have? How many subscribers, et cetera, et cetera. And yet all of that information is owned by massive tech companies that, you know, your mortgage is, is not their consideration. And so um, I think when we look at this and we will look at putting this like career and data sovereignty back in the hands of Berkeley students and then teaching them about it, um, teaching them why that's important, teaching them why, you know, certainly, and that's, you know, this is where the open music piece comes in. We want people to build on top of, we want, you know, we've built architecture, we're, you know, we're not saying that like our UX is the most elegant, um, you know, it's, we're, we're all sort of bootstrapping it. But I think that what's really exciting is that like, we're teaching them that it's important to know who controls your data. It's important to to know um, who's bought your music and what they've used it for. It's an, important to be able to have control over your digital and, and career reputation. And so, you know, as they go out into the world and they think about the services they're going to use and the places that they're going to let use their music, we hope that this educational tool will serve as, um, you know, a, a like a, a, a sort of like learning experience for them but also it actually exists and it works. And so it is actually going to be something that they leave Berkeley with an actual, you know, record of their work and, and of the license um, songs that they've licensed. Mm -hmm. Just going back for a moment, I, sort of a, a bit of a tangent, but as you were describing the metadata inputs and some of the ways that students tag their own work, um, is there Anybody who's working on a sort of a, a neural net or machine learning layer related to semantics in the audio to, to help um, tag things in such a way to make it more discoverable, um, 
Well, but, but this is the great lie of the music industry, right? Like, oh, we, we, can't, we can't possibly pay you artists because we don't know how much your song is getting played. And yet, at the end of every year, I get a report from Spotify that says these are your most listened to tracks. So one can't exist without the other. So the, the whole structure, that I, the analogy that I talked about before with Sabre was, and Nicole articulated it far better than I, but, but the, you start learning. You start, you start learning that, I mean, just like with the, with, the, with the airlines, they start, oh, wow, there is a demand for a, a flight route between Poughkeepsie and Murfreesboro or something, right? <laughs> they didn't, you wouldn't just know that. Right. And so I've always said that, that, that standards, metadata or whatever follow transactions, not the other way around. And the music industry, for whatever reason, has just decided that, that like we have to we white males have to codify according to the way our neural maps map, which is ludicrous. Right. And, and I mean, think and also racist. Right. Like we're finally in 2020 realizing that maybe we shouldn't call an entire genre of music urban. Right. I mean, come on. And so so I'm deeply unconcerned about about <laughs> look, neural maps and machine learning, and all that dominantly right now is being generated by white males. So we want to have the playground, but it has to lead with values first. And, the va- and, and, and what radars allowed us to do to other stakeholders who want to access this data is you have to answer one question. Is, is your accessing and building on top of this layer going to be a net benefit to uh, Berkeley artists' ability to create sustainable careers on their own terms? If yes, then we as a group should consider it. If don't know, then go away. And if no, go to hell. Right. And so like it it allows for some binary decision making that's actually leading with values rather than constantly leading with economic imperatives, which look where that's gotten us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So so to answer your question directly, there there will be people who will be able to come to us and say we can tag into the radar database and using our our technology help through machine learning or otherwise categorize, identify whatever works. And if there's a net benefit to that input to Berkeley students, we should consider it. And I think that the other piece is that like, again, because of the way that we've built it, you know, it's, it is open source. And so because of that, like, I think that one of the probably interesting conversations is going to be around sort of like protection of data um, and, you know, how that data, like if, you know, if somebody builds on top of stack, um, on top of what we've built, how will they then feed, you know, usage data or any type of data that they're collecting back into our system in a way that, again, the artists can learn from? Because, like, that's, you know, such a cool thing. Like, if you didn't know that Feudal Japan was a tag, but, like, you're putting something else in and then it suggests that, and then, like, you see, like, oh, that's, like, actually the most licensed category. Um, then you're probably going to want to go back to your studio and maybe think about producing some music that has a feudal Japan feel to it. And that's what I mean about the market defining standards, not the other way around. No white yeah. male is going to go, okay, in addition to genre, tempo, BPM, we also need to have the feudal Japan tag. And I would just say also on the education side, I mean, I teach things like copyright law. This allows me finally, finally, finally to, to lead with a, a carrot, not a stick. 
In other words, I can say to a student, oh, if you don't learn section 115 of the copyright code, you're going to be punished for it. Now I can say, you want your music licensed? You have to understand basic rules of copyright to get it up there in the Berkeley radar. So there'll be tutorials and educational elements of this, which I think presents Berkeley with just tremendous competitive advantage against, against other places. And also hopefully will allow us to distribute that knowledge out there more efficiently to those people who aren't as fortunate to be able to come to Berkeley. I mean, we, we eventually want these students who are at Berkeley, particularly uh, you know, non-binary white males, to go out there and start teaching through example. We want, I want desperately people of color to be teaching the next generation about the importance of copyright, because unless and until that happens, we're just gonna keep repeating the same thing. So in your opinion, how do we do the work of giving people access who don't have access. I'm just curious if, if you have any thoughts about about connecting those dots that you were just describing, yeah, so, I mean, George. Berkeley's a pretty, I give a lot of credit to the Berkeley leadership, it's a pretty diverse campus, right? And so there is some degree of likelihood that, that one of my students that doesn't look anything like me um, will will utilize radar and as part of that process, be rewarded again incentives okay i understand now that registering my copyright is important and i got positive feedback because it got licensed i made money whatever and then that person tells their friends about this they become the teacher my my job as an educator is to to convert my my students into teachers because i can't i don't scale you know <laughs> and i also i'm a white male well, and it's it, it's also been happening. I mean, I think that we've seen sort of the the holes in the explanations, George, in creating the educational materials. So, like, you know, there's there's like explanations and um, some example contracts and whatnot that are going to be within the platform and having these conversations with students where they've sort of been charged with coming up and explaining um, the various parts of radar. And it's just, you know, I mean, there is that sort of like old adage, like the best way to learn something is to teach it. It's and, the um, truest adage. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we've seen that in practice. And again, like mm -hmm. it's sort of that, you know, each one teach one, like it's just been this like chain of learning that we've seen go through the, the students and, you know, more students keep on coming on. And so a lot of what people are going to see on the site was designed and written in partnership. I mean, it was, you know, certainly like a lawyer George like being like yes that's actually law that's actually true but then parsing it down to um, you know a website that anyone can understand I've been teaching copyright law for I don't even know how long I bet you that I've had more impact in terms of just getting students to understand what a a controlled composition is through this radar project in a year than I have in 10 years of classroom lectures, because it's, it's so, it's an abstract concept, you know, and the record labels want to keep it abstract. They, <laughs> I can promise you record labels do not want artists to understand what a controlled composition clause is. So it, it's exciting to hear this, that this important information is actually um, in a context now uh, where students young people, hopefully more musicians can feel empowered as opposed to, as you put it earlier, feel like they might be punished by not knowing something. Correct. Um, that they're inspired to know something. Yeah, that there's, there's a reward. And, and 
that that reward is a, a, a sustainable career on their terms. And, and, you know, inevitably someone will say, well, you don't need a blockchain for that. No, you could do this with a database, you know, that's that's a traditional one, but somebody's going to have to own that. Right. And as Nicole pointed out earlier, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it can go down. Institutions go down. And, yeah. and you know, not all not all databases are immutable. Um, our copyright database is not right. So there are benefits to using this technology. Blockchain has gone from a word that all if you used to say, you know, people would just rain money on you to a sort of dirty word now. And that's a very natural progression. The Internet did the same thing. CDs did the same thing. You, you go through a trough of despair stage and you shake out all of the noise and all the bad actors. And then and then it's little blooms um, that are actually good and not poison ivy. You know, it's a lovely metaphor. I'm, I'm highly allergic to poison ivy. Well, um, I just want to say thank you to both of you um, for talking about OMI, talking about radar. Uh, it's really exciting and talking about how. I mean, at the at the core of this, there's an, an enabling technology that's that's unlocking some potential on behalf of artists. And, you know, you call out the equity issue, um, George, and, and I really appreciate that. And um, um, good luck. And if there's anything that you need, any way that we can support, please let us know. I appreciate your work very much. Well, I appreciate you so much. And, yeah, and you as a teacher, you as, a, as, as one of the architects of just what it means to be a true professional in the music industry. And then I just, I couldn't love Isotope as a company more. I think Mark is just unbelievable. So yeah, the fact that we're not doing more together is just so strange to me. Well, it's because we're so far apart. I know, yeah. I know that that, that so fifteen minutes distance is. Well, <laughs> thanks for that. giving that us this. Sounds like a collaboration. Yeah. Yes. But, but thanks for this opportunity. Really appreciate it, Jonathan. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Headroom. Join me next time when guest Brian Pardo will talk about some of the fascinating research that's being done that points us to what might be possible in the future of audio product development. Headroom is a podcast produced by Isotope Incorporated, music by Smigonaut. Thanks to the team. See you soon.